Welcome back to The Bulwark Goes to Hollywood. My name is Sonny Bunch. I'm culture editor at The Bulwark. Uh, and I'm very pleased to be joined today by Brian Gewertz, uh, the author of There's Just One Problem, True Tales from the Former, One-Time Seventh Most Powerful Person in the WWE. Uh, Brian, thanks for being on the show today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Uh, so, you know, as, as I said, the show's Bulwark goes to Hollywood, um, and I feel like wrestling is a good way to think about Hollywood right now, just in terms of uh, the mainstreaming of wrestling. We'll, we'll talk about that in a little bit, but I want to get, I want to go all the way back to the start of your story. Uh, how did you, how did, how did Dwayne The Rock Johnson get you into the world of wrestling on a full-time basis? Because this is a fascinating story to me. Yeah, thanks. It, it, it's, it's kind of a crazy string of, you know, um, unbelievable happenings, I guess, because, or not unbelievable happenings, but a, a lot of, you know, fortunate, um, fortunate tales mixed with a little, like, nice little splash of nepotism at some point. Um, you know, basically, you know, I had wanted to be a sitcom writer since third grade, watching my uncle. My uncle Howard was a showrunner. He, he, produced Taxi and Bosom Buddies with Tom Hanks and Wings, uh, Larry Sanders. And that's something I always wanted to do. So when I graduated college, I went out to Hollywood to, as most of us did, graduating uh, from Syracuse. And, you know, we we did our thing, you know, putting in our time, working as production assistants and, you know, slowly making our way up the ranks. I was lucky enough to get on a show, um, uh, work on a couple of shows as a writer, you know, in my early twenties, one of them being Jenny, Jenny McCarthy sitcom, which my uncle, um, was the showrunner on. So that's the first little slash dash of nepotism, but I'd like to think I earned it too. My writing partner and I, um, based on our previous credits, but unfortunately, um, you know, like the world wasn't really ready to see, you know, Jenny McCarthy transition from crazy, wild, singled out, gal to uh ernest laverne and shirley wannabe from utica trying to make it in the world of hollywood so that show got canceled relatively quickly and i was out of work for a while my writing partner and i we, we were writing spec scripts doing a lot of meetings and stuff but weren't we weren't getting hired you know as is the case often in hollywood sometimes you're like working on three shows in a row sometimes you know you're not staffed for the season so i was you know toiling away almost getting a job you know, as I write about, um, as a fast food spy for Jack in the Box, they had this ad in the LA Times where they basically wanted you to like meet in a hotel airport and then, you know, if, if you get picked, and that's a big F. Um, and there was a lot of clientele at that airport that was not going to get picked. So I consider myself an accomplishment for having made it past round two. You know, essentially like hiding in the bushes with a stopwatch, timing the drive through, seeing if the bathrooms were clean. You know, everything that an aspiring writer has always dreamed of when, when heading out to L.A. Um, and then the second, like, splash of nepotism and fortunate happenings occurred um, because my sister, who um, my uncle had helped get an internship at MTV through the Jenny Connection, gave me a call and said she was interning at MTV and they were doing a bunch of SummerSlam specials in conjunction with uh, WWE, WWF at the time. And they needed they needed a writer for these specials. And I guess everyone at MTV in the summer, July of '99, was way too cool to have a you know in-depth wrestling knowledge. So she knew that I was a big fan. So she called me. Um, and again, it's like 
I, I kind of jokingly say a splash in nepotism, but ultimately you got to do the work and you got to get hired on your own merit. So I wrote up a whole bunch of things, a whole bunch of samples, whatever they requested. Uh, they looked it over. They hired me off of that. And then I came, you know, I flew from LA right before I was supposed to start my first uh, Jack in the Box fast food spy shift. So it was very disappointing. I never got to do that. But uh, ultimately, the long about answer is I, I got hired by MTV to write these specials. Um, one of them was the wrestling superstars, you know, um, introduced their favorite music videos, you know, which I asked MTV, oh, so these are the these are the songs in the videos that these guys, um, you know, gave to you. And they're like, no, no, they we have no idea if they like these songs. <laughs> or even have heard of these artists, but you just need to write them in their own voice because these are the music videos that are popular at the time. So that's, that's literally not what they said popular at the time because we were in the present, but you get the idea. Um, <laughs> um, so one of them, yeah, so I had written these, you know, these kind of intricate scripts highlighting, I think it was like uh, Limp Biscuit, Nookie and um, Kid Rock and Corn. There was a video with Mankind, Mick Foley, you know, trying to spot corn in a corn video, all these type of things. And and the one I did with Dwayne, I don't even remember what the artist was, but he was like, wow, you really have my voice down really well. Um, at the time, you know, The Rock only spoke in the uh, third person. Um, so it was like, yeah, you only have like a the pronoun I once here in, in all of the uh, pages of script that you wrote. So he we really hit it off we ended up doing a vignette together where he hit me with and it doesn't matter um i don't know where this vignette exists i can't find it on youtube uh that's probably for the best and then he was like hey do you ever consider writing for wwe um which is something i never considered you know it was so far off the grid as far as quote unquote real television was at the time but i decided to you know take him up on the offer because why not i wasn't doing anything else and you know, ultimately, <laughs> I met with Vince McMahon, um, Shane McMahon, had all these job interviews. And I turned down the job. Vince said, we'll make an offer you can't refuse. And they offered me a job on uh, WWF.com, which, you know, wasn't anything that I was thinking about doing. Um, not like I've written on three shows. They might not be great shows. I'm not like packing up and leaving L.A., to write for WWF.com, no offense, WWF.com, no offense to WWE.com in the present. Just wasn't something I was interested in. Um, and then I got hired, my writing partner and I got hired on another show and I thought that was the end of it. And then, uh, you know, at a certain point, that show was wrapping up and the two writers who were at WWF at the time kind of left while they were overseas on a, on a tour um, while, the, while the WWF was. And... WWE called and said, yeah, listen, uh, we know we offered you a job at the website. Like, can you forget all of that and come immediately to write on our television show? Because we have a situation. And then there was a decision to make. So I'm like, figured, well, I don't want to go through the same thing, like the same post-Jenny thing again. So yeah, I took it. And that's essentially the very long version. So forgive me for this rambling of how off of Dwayne's the Rock um, Johnson's uh, suggestion. I ended up at WWE. So let's let's talk about what it was at what writing for the WWE was actually like at the time. Because at the time, there's just 
Monday Night Raw, right? When you start, it's it's Monday or had SmackDown already started? SmackDown had started. I started on the sixth episode of SmackDown. They're on their five millionth now, but it was number six when I started. Right. So, so you you're you're stepping into this place where it's suddenly expanded from one live show or one one show a week to two shows a week. You've got the pay per views, Sunday night shows. What is it like for for the writing team there at the time? Because it was only you and a couple other guys, right? When I first started, it was just me and another writer who had just started himself. Uh, named Tommy Blacha, who I'm still friends with, uh, is a very funny guy. He came over from Conan, and he was always of the mindset of, I'm going to do this for a couple months for the stories, and then I'm gone. I'm gone by WrestleMania 2000. And it was literally just the two of us and the McMahons. But it was a very, it was a shock to the system to me because I had, first of all, I had no idea how the process worked. Um, I assumed that with so many hours of TV to write, you know, when you're talking about a pay-per-view week, that's one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, Sunday night heat, eight hours of TV a week, that there would be long writers meetings. And and, and that's essentially what it is now, uh, meeting all day in Stanford. But at the time, because it was a time of transition with the two previous writers leaving um, and, the, and the company about to go public, it was just pure chaos, really. I was told... I had an apartment in Stanford, WWF, I did it again, WWE put me up in an apartment in Stanford, moved my car across country, everything else. And I figured, all right, great. Where's the office? Where do we go in to, to write? And I was told, well, you don't really need to come in at all. Um, write your ideas down, type them up, and then fax them to Vince's office. <laughs> and then you'll show up to TV on Monday and see if he uses any of them. And I'm like, oh, that's that's different. Um, what about SmackDown? Should we come up with stuff for that? Well, SmackDown's all predicated on what happens on Raw. So you'll just write SmackDown morning of the show in Vince's hotel suite at like, you know, seven in the morning or something like that. I'm like, wow, that is um, that is truly different. <laughs> um, and and led me to wonder why am I living in Stanford, Connecticut then if I'm never going into the office? So I subletted my apartment to the new announcer, Jonathan Coachman, who had just started, moved into New York City, which is what I always wanted to do. And I'm like, this is the life for like three months. Sometime in February 2000, they hired some more writers. And it was, yeah, we need to come into the office and write the show like a normal show. <laughs> so so then you get stuck doing the reverse exactly. commute. Reverse commute every, uh, every Wednesday, Thursday and Friday. So what were you, I, explain to, to listeners what you're actually writing, because I feel like, you know, I, I, will, I will guess that most listeners of my show not, not, uh, were not avidly watching the Monday Night Wars as I was, you know, as a, as a teenager, whatever. Uh, you missed out. But, the, but you know, what, what were you actually writing for, for the wrestlers and for the show in general? So the writing is kind of twofold. There's the writing you do before you show up to TV. And when I say to TV, that's a Monday Night Raw live airing or a SmackDown taped airing, even though it's live now, it was taped back then, or a live pay-per-view. And that essentially is, you know, you're writing out, for Raw, it was, back then it was a two-hour show, now it's three. Um, so there were 11 segments, you know, you and, and some of them were match segments, some of them were promo segments, as we call them, which is just, you know, wrestlers talking on the mic and, and usually physicality developing off of it. 
Um, and also the the, the overall storylines happening because you want to have long term storylines in addition to what's happening on the show that day, because ultimately you're trying to get people again. The model has changed so much in 20 years, but at the time you're trying to get people to buy the pay-per-view that's coming up. Now it's all streaming on Peacock. Um, and obviously you're still wanting people to subscribe to Peacock to watch the pay-per-view. But back then it was all about getting the pay-per-view buys as well as maintaining the ratings on USA for Raw and uh, UPN for SmackDown. And so during the week, you'd be pitching segments to Vince, um, pitching, uh, you know, matches, pitching arcs, pitching backstage segments, in-ring segments, all that kind of thing, where you'd basically get it all down on paper. And then when you actually show up to the TV taping, that's when you, you know, really get granular and get into the weeds of it, meeting with the talent and, you know, essentially writing what they're actually going to say, because hopefully after the production meeting that afternoon, the stuff is now solidified as best as it can be as far as what the 11 segments are. And for SmackDown, 10 segments. Uh, now you actually, if it's going to be an in-ring promo, you need to get with the talent, get with the wrestlers and actually write it ideally with them and with their input. Um, and you know, that, that really made those TV days, Mondays and Tuesdays, just a whirlwind of heightened, uh, adrenaline, sometimes panic because, you know, as, as has been said, the show doesn't go on the air because it's ready, the show goes on the air because it's nine o'clock, you know, taking the old Tina Fey SNL uh, quote. Um, so you're, when we had our production meetings, we'd have them at like 11, one, I'd be the guy like, you know, with the quote unquote Hollywood roots saying, you know, usually these scripts are written sometimes months in advance, weeks in advance. The idea of showing up to TV and not knowing what is gonna happen um, is a little terrifying when you're responsible for actually producing it and writing it. So after the production meetings would end, there was just a mad scramble because the wrestlers have their matches to go over. Um, you know, they're not going over that necessarily beat by beat by beat, although in some cases they are, but also all the backstage segments, especially if you look at an episode of Raw from 2000 versus 2022, there's a lot more backstage segments and there's plenty now, but there was a little ton more back then. And sometimes we'd pre-tape them. Oftentimes we'd do them live. Um, that was something, you know, Dwayne always took pride in. Um, I don't know how he did it, but whenever he had a backstage promo and this was like two, three, four minute promos, it's not like a quick soundbite and leaving. He always wanted to do it live because he always fed off the energy of the crowd and like the live interaction. If they're chanting his name, he could pause and look up and that kind of thing. It just made it feel more in the moment. But we would, you know, it really was going by the seat of our pants. Um, and then there's the factor of if a segment that's allotted for seven minutes goes 10 minutes heavy, and now you got to find three minutes to take out of another segment before it's happened. It's just really, really chaotic. And, uh, Part of that it was was nerve wracking, but a lot of it was like, wow, this is I, you, you don't experience this on sitcoms where it takes all day and, and literally all week to write to, to, to produce one. Everything. This is two hours. It's going on from nine to eleven, eleven oh five or whatever it is. And we get to do it all over again tomorrow, as they'd say, uh, you know, after we were done with Raw. Yeah. 
Uh, I mean, it's it's crazy. I mean, you you compare it to SNL, but it's like doing 104 SNLs a year instead of you know 16 or or whatever the yeah. the, the season yeah. run at SNL. There, there are a lot of par- parallels to SNL. You know, with the with the with the like legend overseeing it between Lauren Michaels and Vince, and the you know the clear stars in the cast and the, those who are coming up and those who are just you know could be stars if they got the break kind of thing um you know the main difference with with wwe and snl is the fact that like at least snl has a home base and they're not literally traveling to two cities a week every week 52 weeks a year and they also have time off too you know they have like a, whatever it is a 20 something episode uh season but that's what you know, we were fortunate enough to have some interaction with SNL. We had um, Will Forte and Kristen Wiig, Yorma Tacoma, and, and the MacGruber cast guest hosting once. Um, and they were pretty surprised, you know, how, how things went back there because they were assuming like, oh, how many how many cameras are we doing for this backstage vignette? Uh, no, just this guy is going to just pan a lot. <laughs> I'm like, oh, and are there cue cards? Uh, no. No, when when they go out to the ring, uh, they'll just be reciting twenty minutes worth of material with literally no uh, notes or cue cards or prompter or anything. Yeah, I, you 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 have a great story about SNL. Uh, we'll get to that in a, in a second. But I want I want to uh, hop back to something you mentioned being being the Hollywood guy, being the Hollywood guy in the wrestling room because there there's a there's a there's a great story at the start of your book about wrestlers' court and the the kind of culture clash that you experienced when you first showed up. I mean, it's it's almost kind of hilariously old-fashioned in a way. You know, you, 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 you're supposed to shake everybody's hands, look everybody in the eye, introduce yourself, which is not, was from the sense I get from your book, was not really your uh, modus operandi. Yeah, I mean, it's stuff that you would, on paper, say, well, what the hell is this guy's problem? Of course you should shake everybody's hand and introduce yourself and look them in the eye and all that kind of thing. But, you know, when you're... I don't know, like this kind of like introverted, really out of his element, kind of shy person in the first place. And it takes a while for me to like, you know, warm up and, you know, be comfortable <laughs> around, you know, a, a cast of that's the other thing, you know, versus SNL versus WWE or any show is it's like a cast of like 40 or 50 between all the wrestlers and, you know, managers and announcers and referees and all the other, anyone who's on the air. Um, so yes, absolutely. Like, you know, as, as, as a writer, as someone just starting in a company period, it was important to introduce yourself. And I introduced myself to people, but not everybody. Sometimes I would do just like the nod of recognition or, Hey, how's it going? Um, you know, forms of greetings that would be applauded in the post-COVID world. But back then, it was considered, you know, truly uh, verboten to, to even consider not shaking everyone's hand. So I got in trouble because I was kind of perceived as being, um, you know, a little bit standoffish and, and like, oh, big Hollywood guy here uh, thinks he's too good to shake my hand in the locker room. And it was like, no, I'm not doing that because I'm standoffish. I'm doing that because I'm terrified. You know, obviously, as time wore on, it became much, much less of an issue. But yeah, I got in trouble um, between all of that and the fact that um, one of the wrestlers who I was friends with, because you know, you warm up to people and become friends with them, um, and it's a whole thing in WWE because 
it's like the Harry Met Sally deal. Can, can women and men and women truly be friends? Uh, cause the sex gets in the way WWE is can writers and wrestlers truly be friends because the idea of television time gets in the way. Like, can you truly be friends with someone if, you know, as, as I was told, they're not your friends, they're quote unquote working you. They're trying to get on your good side. So you suggest them to Vince to be in segments on television and stuff like that. And I'd be like, no, we really are friends. We're, we're the same age. We have the same interests. We like the same movies. We hang out. Like, yeah, they are working you, trust me. So it was like that kind of a thing. And some of the wrestlers I was friends with, and I don't say think I was friends with, because we're still friends now, even though, you know, I'm not in wrestling anymore. Uh, for the for the record, we're talking about Christian and Edge yes. here. Uh, the wrestlers, Christian and Edge. Yeah. Edge, you know, was at a signing at a comic book store. Someone gave him a Flash action figure. He knew that I liked the Flash, because who doesn't? Well... I like the fictional character of the Flash. I want to point that out in 2022. Um, <laughs> and tricky, tricky yeah. these days. And then one of the other wrestlers, Hardcore Holly, who was this veteran, really no nonsense, um, extremely real life tough, in the ring tough, everything else, saw this gift giving happen. And that was his aha moment. And he reported it. And next thing I know, you know, we have a huge show. This is 2001. This is the day after WrestleMania 17, which is always considered. Oh, this is the SmackDown after that. So it's still it's considered one of the biggest shows of the year. Uh, and Stephanie told me, yeah, we are uh, going to wrestlers court today. Report to the uh, <laughs> to one of the uh, production meeting rooms where, you know, again, I thought this would be a small thing. I couldn't imagine something like as stupid as someone saw me take a flash action figure as it was explained to me being the impetus for this. Um, I thought, all right, but she said, well, get a, get a box of pizza, get some beers and you know, it'll be fine. And I did that thinking there'll be like six people there. And then it was literally every wrestler, every producer, every agent, every seamstress, every security, every person from catering, the entire company essentially <laughs> came. It was a sellout in the, uh, in whatever room we were in. Um, and myself, Edge and Christian went on trial for gift giving in exchange for television time, which is also funny because Christian really didn't have anything to do with it. He didn't give me a flash action figure. At least I should get two action figures if I'm gonna be put on trial in front of every single wrestler in the company. Uh, I, I just want to set the I just want to create the mental image for people. You know, the, the judge at this trial is, of course, the undertaker. Yeah. Is it and he is he is he dressed as a is does he have like a judge smock on or is he you know just 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 wearing a t shirt and jeans or whatever? He's wearing um, judge apparel with a with a old timey English wig on the cover of the book, but in reality he was dressed normally, which by the way is still plenty imposing. In fact, it would have been a lot less imposing had he been dressed as a 1783 member of British Parliament because then it would just contribute to the surrealness of it. But he was the judge. He did have a gavel, I think, though, if I'm not mistaken. I mean, if you're a judge, you got to have a gavel. Got to have a gavel. And Kane, you know, the, who, who, for those who don't know, is the devil's favorite demon, the big red monster, amongst many of his monikers. He was the bailiff standing behind uh, behind me. It wasn't like, uh, yeah, he was. He was basically the the bull from Night Court. He's not in a outfit too, but, and he's not wearing his mask, 
but still he's seven feet tall and he's got his arms folded and he's not exactly smiling. So that was interesting. And then uh, JBL, John Layfield Bradshaw, who is this, let's just say animated loud Texan who was uh, not afraid to speak his mind um, with like long hair and like just loves beer, that kind of thing. He was the prosecutor. And the uh, defense, you know, the, for our defense was uh, nobody. We, we didn't know we could, I didn't know we could defend ourselves with a lawyer. So we were defending ourselves and uh, it, it did not go over well. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Kane, of course, uh, is his real name is Glenn Jacobs, the mayor. I think he's still the mayor just got of, real uh, in, yeah. in Tennessee, right? Knoxville, Tennessee, yeah. so, his early his early political experience was, you know, uh, sending you to wrestle yeah. jail. Uh, <laughs> I think is... his, his bailiff work is what pushed him over the edge with voters. <laughs> That's great. Uh, so what was the breakdown like for you uh, as as kind of a newcomer between when you looked at that, when you looked at the talent, what was the breakdown between the old school guys and like the newer school guys? Because I really feel like there's a there's a definite uh, difference in some of these, you know, like, uh, hardcore Holly, uh, and some of these, some of these other older school guys and some of the younger guys who were coming up essentially your age, same, same basic age. Yeah, I would say back then, and this is unscientific, but I would say it would be two thirds old school people who grew up in the business as far as you know, starting, you know, in, in independence and territories and other, you know, WCW, ECW, um, and, and really relying on themselves more than anybody, as, as all wrestlers really did back then, to get themselves over. And, and to get over is to basically be, um, you know, cheered by the crowd if you're a good guy, booed by the crowd if you're a bad guy. The worst thing for a wrestler is to be met with indifference and having people go up to get snacks or go to the bathroom or, you know, be chanting what or boring or whatever it is. Even that is a form of some sort of interaction. The worst is just dead silence, um, which happens. But most of these guys, like two thirds of the locker room, you know, they, they came up in an era of no writers and, you know, relying on themselves to get over as, as most wrestlers did, you know, prior to the mid to late nineties. Um, and, you know, then you had like a third who were, you know, just starting, um, whether it was like just being in the company for a year or two um, or being in the spotlight for, you know, that amount of time. And, you know, really it was, it was interesting mix because most of the, you know, take The Rock, for example, he famously was not over when he started. He came up as the smiling, you know, they call them baby faces uh, backstage, good guys named Rocky Maivia taking, you know, the, the lineage of his father and grandfather into this smiling, happy baby face. And he was pushed to the moon. I mean, he he won his debut match at Survivor Series at Madison Square Garden in 1996. He won the Intercontinental title a few uh, months into his reign. And the crowd just could, did not care at all. In fact, it, it, it went the opposite. They started booing and chanting die rocky die and rocky sucks which i guess is uh, i guess is one step up from indifference and silence but it's not what you want to hear if you're a good guy if you're a bad guy it's 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 perfect it's the ideal reaction but as a good guy 
especially back then where you were just told, just smile through it. You're not playing to the people in the stands. You're playing for the millions at home. Uh, you're a good guy. And it was just really, really awkward. So he got himself, you know, he got hurt. He came back. He got himself over uh, as a bad guy when he came back. And from there really took off, as you know, as, as, as a huge, huge star. So when I joined, um, he was already over and he did not need any uh, help really. But he, he remembered me obviously from the MTV shoot and his attitude was, listen, I'm over as hell, but if you can help me get even more over, then great. Why, what do I have to lose? You know, if it works, I improve and I get, you know, even more stuff in my arsenal. And if it sucks, then, uh, you know, we stop working together and, you know, I'll still be over as ever. So, you know, that's not what he literally said, but that was his attitude. Um, so, and, and there were a lot of talents like that, which were like, listen, like Chris Jericho was another one. Like, I, I don't really know who you are or what you bring to the table, but what the hell? Let's see what you got. Prove yourself, um, which is a challenge. You know, I was more than happy to, you know, take because I felt the same way. Like, yeah, if, if I suck and you're not happy with what I'm giving you, then then we shouldn't work together. I shouldn't work here. Um, and then there were some talents that were just like, what is this? Why is some 16 year old looking guy who's probably never been in a fight in his life uh, telling me? how to kick someone's ass in a promo segment, all valid, by the way. Well, I understand where they're coming from. Um, but, you know, I always go back to, and I remember thinking this at the time, it's like, wh what do you know about, you know, fighting and, and drinking and like, all this type of thing? Like, you're completely unqualified for this job. And I'm like, well, I guess I missed the part where like Michael Crichton was um, fighting dinosaurs um, and yet still managed to write, you know, uh, best selling multiple best selling novels about it. Um, or, or Chris Carter, uh, you know, finding aliens before writing the X-Files. It's like, it's a fictional television show. Um, I am a writer who writes fiction, uh, you know, in this format. So yeah. that's why I'm here. Yeah. Uh, and you mentioned the old school guys. We talked about them a little bit. Uh, uh, Seven Bucks has a new show coming out for Vice TV, Tales from the Territories, right? I mean, that sounds, you know, I, as, as somebody who is kind of interested in that era of wrestling but doesn't know a ton about it, that sounds pretty interesting. Yeah, that's thanks. We're really, really excited about that. I mean, that's a show that we teamed up with Vice and the creators of Dark Side of the Ring. And that's sometimes how, by the way, uh, you know, we produce our television shows. It's as simple as... Dwayne was posting on Instagram about some episodes of Dark Side just because he's a fan of it. Um, same with when he was Instagramming about the toys that made us, the show on Netflix, this docuseries. And I'd see his Instagram posts and be like, wow, I'm fans of those shows too. Maybe I'll meet the creators of them. Maybe we can come up with something. So for the um, movies, the toys that made us, that eventually morphed into Behind the Attraction, our show on Disney Plus. Um, and for Tales from the Territories, yeah, that, that was like, we were all fans of Dark Side. I took a meeting with um, Evan and Jason, the creators of that show. And we, you know, we worked together um, with Chavo Guerrero too, who's our stunt coordinator on Young Rock. Um, and like figured out like, yeah, there's plenty of shows about the darkness and the dark side. Those guys have literally done it for multiple seasons. How can we tap into something else like the wild, the crazy, you know, 
stories from the territory days because before wrestling was kind of nationalized and WWF versus WCW, they were split into territories all over the country and in Canada and Mexico, everywhere. Um, and all of these territories had their own, you know, it was, it was considered much, much realer by the fans back then. You had fans attacking bad guys in parking lots or even in the ring. Uh, you had, you know, the stuff that, you know, with the benefit of, you know, zero social media not existing and, you know, certain things, uh, you know, being much more acceptable back then as far as, uh, well, not really acceptable. I guess if you're going to get all drugged up and take a door off a plane and be hanging uh, on for your life as Mad Dog Bashan was um, back then, I guess that that was, I guess, better time to do it if you're ever going to do it in the late 70s, early 80s or what have you than, uh, than doing it now. But, um, you know, so we got together with Vice. We, we got the legends and the people who experienced these stories um, to go sit in round tables and tell us the stories like straight from their heads. Um, and then, you know, in this style and the spirit of dark side, we would basically shoot recreations of those stories. So what you'll see is, you know, seeing the people who experience them or telling or firsthand or secondhand experience them and then actually see the stories come to life. Um, you know, all different territory every episode. Yeah, so yeah. it's really uh, And cool. again, that's uh, October 4th, right? October 4th on Vice TV. Yep. Yeah, awesome. October 4th um, on Vice. You mentioned, you mentioned social media, and there's there's a great story towards the end of your book about uh, The Rock and John Cena uh, kind of having legitimate beef with each other, I think, uh, in, in, a, in a realer way than I think a lot of people expect uh, from, from wrestling. But one thing that jumped out at me in that story was, uh, was Dwayne Johnson going to his Facebook page and, like, getting, getting legit angry. And it made me think about how much the, the industry has changed with the advent of social media. I mean, you, you, as somebody who got into it, you know, before social media and who is, has kind of watched as, as the, as the rise of Facebook and Reddit and Twitter and all the rest, um, from your perspective, how has that changed wrestling and, uh, its relationship with not only the performers, but also uh, the viewers. I mean, I feel like it's a it's a huge a huge sea change here. Oh yeah, totally. It, it's really, you know, in some respects, it's great that you can continue storylines and angles on social media, um, and that's essentially you know what happened with with Rock and John. You know, John cut a promo when he was in Australia. Um, you know, basically saying, hey, I'm here, The Rock's not here, which was kind of was his, you know, recurring theme during this exchange between him and, and Dwayne when they were, uh, you know, building their match. Somebody, and it's not like John didn't know this would happen, you know, John is savvier than anyone, but someone caught it on their cell phone, posted on social media, Rock saw it, and was like, what the hell? Because that specific gripe, you know, was something that, I don't think they were on the same page about it's kind of like yeah i'm not there i never said i was going to be there every week uh, you know i put in my time i was there full time and then i left and now i'm coming back what's not to yeah, understand for full, for full context you know, for everybody i mean this is after uh dwayne johnson right. has left and is is becoming a movie star and in, in hollywood i mean this is what 2010 11 uh, yeah um, yeah so yeah, i mean he he was coming back to the show occasionally to do promos but not 
on a week to week basis, like a guy like Cena. Yeah. And, you know, John, you know, whether he was just wanting to continue the angle, whether he like was legit hurt that, you know, Dwayne wasn't there, you know, he cut his promo and Dwayne saw that. And this is when he's not on TV. So he was able to use Facebook to respond back, respond in a way, you know, probably much more realer than WWE would want it because WWE eventually told both of them to cool it, um, save it for television. But, you know, social media is, well, first of all, it's great as far as like, you know, if you miss something or if you want, especially as a, as a writer, if you want to see instant reaction to a promo, a match, a television show, there's no shortage of feedback, as you know, on social media, good or bad. And sometimes you can't take it exactly at face value. Um, but oftentimes, yeah, it gives you a pretty good indication of what the people are thinking more so than when, you know, in, in, in my days there, it would be based on the crowd reaction uh, from the people in the arena and also based on the ratings and the minute by minutes, we'd get them to the minute and see what went up, what went down. Um, and that's an effective way of looking at it too, but it's much more personal and intimate, you know, with wrestlers having their multiple accounts, you know, Becky Lynch, I think, you know, used her account perfectly in her, uh, you know, WrestleMania match with Ronda Rousey and, and Charlotte Flair a few years back. But she was just savage on her Twitter page as far as insulting them and always in character, too. And that's one of those fine lines when you're uh, a wrestler as far as, you know, needing to ask yourself, am I going to be the character that I portray on TV, on my social accounts, or am I going to be my real life person, persona? Uh, and there's a lot of, you know, the people who two thirds of the people that I started working with in 1999 would, would look ahead you know, to 2022 and say, my God, you're basically killing the business. If you're a bad guy, but also showing yourself at a birthday party or, you know, going to the, you know, going out to dinner or something like that, because then you become less than larger than life. Um, you become just a, you know, quote unquote, um, you know, like a regular fan, that type of thing. Uh, and then there's a the flip side of that to be like, well, this is my life. This is my account. Uh, I'm not changing who I am just because I have a character on TV. And if anything, it gives fans a better perspective of me as a human being and gets to know me a little bit better and hopefully, you know, creates empathy or if you're a heel, you know, uh, and you're doing stuff that they don't like heat or whatever it is. So, yeah, it's a really interesting dynamic. I mean, there's a part of me that even though I was considered the new school when I started, like really appreciate the old school aspects of keeping in character and keeping uh, some kind of you know, mystique to your persona, even on social media, but I get it. I mean, I get wanting to, to post and, and to do all these things that are outside of the realm because you have a finite shelf life in WWE. You're, you're only there. I mean, some people are there for a while, but most, you know, taking bumps is hard. Performing is hard. Um, you know, like any athlete, you, you have like a limited amount of bumps in you, a limited amount of matches in you. So um, why not? you know, do what you want while you have that yeah. you know, level. If of you ever want to read a story about a writer taking a bump, you got to pick up uh, Brian's book. Uh, there's just one problem. True tales from the former one time seventh most powerful person in the WWE. There's a very, very funny story about, you know, uh, a snowed out show and, and some, some downtime and some, some shenanigans being gotten up to, uh, but Stuff that could never, ever, ever happen <laughs> too, today. Too controlled now. Uh, you know, it, it 
just yeah. one one last thing on the on the Facebook stuff here because it is interesting to me that uh, again you mentioned you mentioned this but you know Vince McMahon was like guys knock it off you got you got to stop this we we got it was he afraid of losing control of the narrative or just wasting good material I mean like what does does he was he like we we need to be doing this on TV for the crowd not for free on Facebook or Twitter it's a good question I, I think it really was a combination of both because. On the one hand, it was getting so personal and so, uh, you know, Vince, you know, likes to be in control of his product. And this was veering out of his control, um, which isn't good because, you know, they, you know, when you're in charge, you want things done a certain way. You have a vision. You don't want it getting so real to the point of untenable as far as the, the talent wanting to work with each other. Um, and a lot of it probably is like, hey, this is this is not uh, on our show. And I don't know if this is, this is great stuff, but I want, I want it to be done a closer to when you guys are actually going to have your match, because I think this was like months and months out um, when neither of the, you know, when rock wasn't on TV and what have you. Um, but yeah, I definitely think it was a combination. It was a combination of let's, let's calm down a little bit <laughs> before somebody says something that, you know, you can't take back and let's save it for, you know, the money-making portion of our gigantic multi-million dollar multiple WrestleMania three-year angle. What are you guys doing? <laughs> yeah, it's crazy. I mean, I, Vince McMahon is a recurring character in, in the book, obviously. I mean, he is the, the uh, you know, the guy in charge of WWE, WWF for, for all these years. Um, there, there are lots of great little Vincisms, as you, as you put it, I guess, as everybody over there puts it. My favorite was one of the early ones uh, in the book. Treat every day like it's your first. In terms of working with McMahon and you know uh, and and seeing what he was like in real life as opposed to on TV, as the rest of us experience him, what was what was that persona like? I mean, was it was it was it weird that he? It, I, the sense I get from the book, and I'm sorry, I'm rambling here, but the sense I get from the book is that the backstage Vince McMahon is very much like TV McMahon down, down to the like cackle laugh whenever he finds something uh, surprisingly funny. You know, Vince is obviously um, an understatement to say a uh, complex, interesting individual, but he really is the bittersweet symphony uh, song, a million different people from one day to the next. Um, he, at, at his heart, he's a performer. And when you're at TV, when you're at a TV taping, you kind of take on the persona of a performer, even when you're not on television, even if you're backstage. So if that means like running the production meeting or, you know, having meetings with individual wrestlers, you're kind of in a performer phase because you're putting on a show, whether you're on TV or not, versus when you're at Stanford. Uh, and that's where the WWE, you know, corporate headquarters are. And you're just meeting either one-on-one -on -one or meeting in a small group or, or, you know, in Vince's case, doing board meetings or doing individual, you know, meetings with any of the uh, corporate officers of, of WWE. Um, he's not in full Mr. McMahon mode. He, he's much more reserved, much more down to earth. Um, you know, uh, obviously it was very, very important that he uh, eat something because he can get very uh, angry if he's uh, not fed. But, you know, in, in general, the, the dichotomy between, you know, Vince at TV versus Vince in Stanford 
was pretty noticeable as far as, um, and, and I think a lot of that has to do with just, again, that live show or even tape show energy and the let's put on a show wrestling promoter kind of overall aura and feel. Whereas, you know, back, you know, during the week when we're not at TV, you know, there can be intense moments here and there, but for the most part, it was a much more grounded, relatively um, stable <laughs> uh, type of type of meetings and type of interactions where, um, whereas at TV, yeah. it's just, yeah, fully like yeah. speaking to the next level. Um, all right. So let's, let's skip ahead a bit. And, uh, you know, the, the rock kind of gets you into wrestling in a weird way, in a, in a, in a more serious way than, than the MTV SummerSlam promos. Uh, but he also gets you out of wrestling, uh, in the, in the, in the end here. And you, you're now at his production company, seven bucks. Um, uh, you guys are, I, I, you just started or are about to start taping season three of Young Rock, right? Which you EP, um, and I hear is coming back to the state is going to be taping in the States this year, which is very exciting. Oh, it's huge. We're, we're shooting in Memphis, um, at, starting in September with a 11, four, November 4th premiere date on, uh, Fridays. So yeah, this is something it is ironic. I never really thought of it that way, but he, he brought me in and took me out is, is absolutely right and accurate. Um, you know, because at the time he was starting his own production company and he wanted to take me with him. And it wasn't like, um, it wasn't like I had indicated to him that if an opportunity like this ever arises, please let me know as soon as possible. Because, you know, five years as a writer in WWE yeah. or one year, I should say is like five years, yeah. I think in Hollywood. Um, you know, just the time and just the overall everything to it. So, you know, after about when he had first approached me about it in 2012, it had been like 13 years or so. Uh, and I was just ready. I was ready to go. And then, you know, I was able to finagle a deal with WWE and with Seven Bucks, Dwayne and Danny, uh, where I could work part time for both for and that lasted for like about three years or so. And then in 2015, He's like, all right, we're ready to go if you are. And I'm like, I have been ready for a long time. Let's do it. So, yeah. And and part of that is, you know, it's funny because even though we're outside of WWE, you know, at, at Dwayne obviously is third generation wrestler. His grandfather, his grandmother was a promoter, his dad, Rocky Johnson, obviously. And I still have my WWE roots too. So even though we're producing plenty of shows that that don't involve wrestling <laughs> you know it's still in our dna so we have tales from the territories we have young rock we have even uh even the yeah. xfl has come <laughs> <Yeah>. back <laughs> back when i thought in 20 2001 that i would never have anything to do with uh that football league again but it's back in a much much better form uh one that i'm excited about so that's good um you know it is not the xfl depicted in the book in the story of uh how it came to be and went away. Um, but yeah, and we have other wrestling related adjacent projects in development too. So it's just something we love and something that we always are going to come back to, but it's, it's nice that we have, you know, a, a pretty wide palette and plenty of other things as well. You didn't mention it, but one, one that I, uh, quite enjoy is fighting with my family, starring Florence Pugh, uh, produced yeah. by seven bucks. Uh, very, it's a, uh, it's, it's a good look at kind of the, I don't know, backstage real life life of what it takes to become uh, a wrestler in the in the in the big leagues. Uh, so check that out if you get a chance. Um, I, you know, part of part of this uh, 
this has to do with the mainstreaming of wrestling and and also the like not just the mainstreaming of wrestling but also the mainstreaming of wrestlers i mean obviously Dwayne johnson one of the biggest stars in the world john cena one of the biggest stars in the world um how how from your perspective as somebody who kind of watched all of this happen in real time how is this uh come about i mean how has the world accepted wrestlers as like you can absolutely be number one biggest star in the world now I mean, I think a lot of it just has to do with the sheer talent of the individuals who have ascended to that level. I mean, like, obviously, you know, the world has seen what Dwayne Johnson can do since he hosted SNL in 2000 uh, and then embarked on his movie career. But, you know, John Cena, Dave Bautista, like these guys are just truly, truly super talented. And that was one of the things, you know, that I always I shook my head at in the beginning of John's movie career because he was being cast in, you know, at the time, WWE films, uh, The Marine and 12 Rounds. And, you know, the movies, this is apart from the movies themselves. Um, this has nothing to do with it. It was just the, the, the way John was portrayed is kind of like this serious, no-nonsense, um, you know, action hero. Um, whereas in real life, we know, you know, that Peacemaker John Cena is way closer to real-life John Cena um, you know, then Marine John Cena, it just is, he's, he's funny, he's irreverent, um, you know, and, and Dave Batista, for instance, is like, you know, very, he's soulful and, you know, is a very like, you know, and, and, and also very dryly, subtly hilarious. You know, you saw that backstage at WWE, it really wasn't, other than a couple of vignettes and lines and everything, it was never really tapped into because he was a main eventer he was this gigantic, you know, muscles star, what have you, and dry humor, you know, is really isn't one of the assets usually that, the, you know, a, a top wrestler is usually, you know, put in the forefront. Um, but he was perfect as Drax and, and, and in Blade Runner and, and everything else. Um, you know, I think, I think like the popularity of wrestling over the years has, it is, it has gotten more mainstream. It has gotten, you know, part of that, you know, as much as I hated to write when we took a step back from PG-14 rating to PG, um, strategically, that was probably a good idea as far as gaining a little bit more mainstream acceptance, being able to be, you know, taken in more by younger kids and, and that kind of thing and, and parents letting them letting the kids go. Um, and, and that kind of opened up floodgates. I mean, we have you know, for better or worse, I have a whole chapter about the infamous guest host era where we went on a weird uh, turn as far as bringing in a different Hollywood star like SNL every week to host the show. It went off the rails pretty quickly, even though there were some great episodes. Um, but all of that, I think, contributed to a little bit more, you know, mainstream acceptance. You know, the fact that WWE is like now a part of Peacock and everything. Um, you know, when I started as popular as it was, and it was very popular, like if you look at the advertisements during it, it was, you know, Stacker 2 energy pills. Um, and, and you know, it wasn't the like mainstream type of advertisers or acceptance or that kind of thing. It still, it was extraordinarily popular. Um, but as you could just see from their TV deals nowadays, um, you know, the, the TV deal, that they get for USA and from Fox for Raw and SmackDown is gigantic compared to what it is back then, even though the ratings are 
much smaller with TV being segmented and streaming and everything else. It's all part of the just like kind of the mainstream acceptance of, of WWE and AEW on, on Turner and everything else. Um, and then, yeah, when you get stars that are pretty undeniable in like The Rock and John Cena and Batista. And by the way, there are plenty more, too, um, you know, that are that are going to be huge movie stars coming out of WWE and dare I say W as well, you know, down the pike and over the years, it's just a matter of, uh, you know, what role they're going to break through and doing it. It really is key that getting that first big role or not even the first big role, the first smart role that kind of breaks them out of the mold. I mean, with the rock, you had, uh, him in, uh, be cool and Southland tales, right? Southland tales. Like, I, like I'm one of seven people on the planet who like that movie, but you know, his, his, his performance in that, like gives you a different side of him. It gives you a different humorous side again with John Cena. You know, it wasn't until train wreck that people were like, Oh, okay. He can, he can do something other than like the Marine or, you know, kind of Dudley do right type. Mm-hmm. Uh, and Batista, you know, Drax obviously, but, but really it was that turn in blade runner 2049. Uh, you know, Denny Villeneuve saw something in him was like, okay, he can do not just big hulking guy. I mean, he can't. He does that in that role as well. But you know, there's there's more to him, and uh, yeah. it's it's really it's really interesting. All right, I, we're running long here, so I'm gonna just once again I'll tell everybody pick up the book if you're if you love wrestling. If you want to hear stories, I mean, stories about Rowdy Rowdy Piper. We haven't talked about that. Uh, you know, uh, as you mentioned, the XFL the the XFL chapter is hilarious. I, poor Stephanie McMahon. I just felt so bad for her reading <laughs> that. Uh, but you know, pick up the book. Um, there's just one problem, uh, tales from the former one time, seventh most powerful person in the WWE, uh, Brian Gewurz is your name. I see. I almost messed it up there. Brian Gewurz is, is the, the name <laughs> of the author. Uh, make sure you, you pick it up. And, uh, I always like to close these interviews by asking if there's anything I should have asked. Um, if there's anything you think people should know about the WWE, about, uh, I don't know, the world of Hollywood working, working in seven bucks. I mean, I, I'm, I'm open anything you want to tell folks um you know look i, I don't really i i, I don't I'm, I'm always terrible at these kind of uh questions because i have this almost superpower to come up with the perfect response roughly five minutes after we sign off and go off the air but you know as i kind of like wrap up the book it's like just you know i guess it's not really a question but i'll just leave it with the sentiment of like you truly I know it's it's cliche to say, but you really truly never know, you know, what the hell this life in this crazy world is going to give you. Because for me, like the last thing in the world I was ever thinking of, despite being a big fan as a kid, um, would be to become a wrestling writer and, and never even considered, you know, television development either. Um, you know, it was straight ahead sitcom. Got to do what my uncle did. Um and yeah and then you know one thing leads to another and you just you know you take the ride and, and see where it takes you and sometimes yeah. it'd be pretty amazing uh well brian thank you very much for being on the show again everybody go pick up the book uh, it's on amazon barnes and noble wherever books are sold uh you can you can get a copy and uh i will be back next week with another episode of the bulwark goes to hollywood see you guys then mm-hmm.